This is Audio Gyan and I am your host Kedar Nimkar. Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world. Today we have Fernando Velo with us on Audio Gyan. He's a Goa-based architect, researcher and visiting professor of urban design at the Goa College of Architecture. He's a part of Goa Collective. a group of professionals working towards better urban spaces and public life in goa they're drawing or uh, should i say they're redrawing maps and uh, today we are here to discuss more about it what's goa collective and all about maps primarily from a philosophical perspective but also literal so let's see how it unfolds uh, welcome fernando to audio gyan it's a real real pleasure to have you on the show thank you so much kedar for having me on your podcast i really look forward to chatting with you Great, great. So yeah, thanks for giving your time, and I've come up with uh, sort of ten questions. Again, briefly touching upon Goa Collective and also what are maps? Uh, how are they designed? I don't know how many of as in I have not heard any any sort of podcast uh, in the Indian space where we are specifically talking about maps uh, at, in general. And uh, obviously, I'm not expecting any cartographical or like more technical kind of stuff, but generally. philosophical so i wanted to start off by asking like what according to your maps i mean we'll we'll start from the base how do you perceive them uh, what is your understanding what made you sort of interest in maps and how has the journey been so far okay so let's uh, talk about maps uh, very broadly maps are representations by which uh, human beings navigate the world we understand the world through maps and these are Uh, some of the oldest uh, non-verbal means of representations that exist in the world. Okay, and uh, there are specific quantities that go qualities that go into making a map. There is a element of measurement, and there's an element of spatiality. Okay, so if you do not have the quantity of measurement in your map, it becomes a painting. If mm-hmm. it's only measurement, it becomes a graph. so you have to have this play of measurement as well as spatiality and that's what makes a map and this is the way we navigate the world some of the oldest maps dangerously close to being paintings but they could be they could qualify as being maps these are the maps that existed in the cave paintings say in bimbetka in france maps are one of the earliest forms of uh, non-verbal communication that exists in the world they are means by which human beings make sense of uh, the world and uh, it is through maps that we navigate uh, navigate and understand the world around us uh, maps have two specific qualities that are required to call it a map one is the element of measurement and one is the representation of spatiality so if a map does not have an element of measurement in it it is a painting or if it has only measurement it becomes a graph so it is this interplay between representation of spatiality is what goes into making a map and uh, but uh, of, isn't measurement sort of also establishing the spatiality yeah it is a interplay of both so okay. you need to be you need to have the data and verifiable data in order to represent it uh, so 
there is uh, there is both as i said it's an interplay and there's no right formula to this it is what one is trying to say by making a map and what is one trying to get at by making a map that determines what is the data one would require and what is the type of representation one would choose to make a map mm-hmm. yeah. so scale is a type of measurement like when you say interplay between technically sort of the scale and the directions and all those things are fall in that sort of bucket yeah um, so scale is one of the earliest forms of quantifying the world because uh, some of the earliest maps made uh, by cro-magnons were when they entered the caves and then they began drawing animals in relation to each other so there was an element of scale they drew the animals they hunted and uh, they compared them they also compared their migration patterns etc so there was an element of scale and it's one of the most basic forms of measurement that generally could be done visually also so scale and maps is one of the like most fundamental conditions of mapping i would say wow oh, beautiful actually i'm i'm sort of um, because a designer i'm sort of visualizing so i wanted to like go deeper into this question that when you said animals what are different types of maps because uh, when you typically say map we like india or world and then five continents yeah. and that's what you see right in the artist side of space i've seen different people doing different sorts of map also sometimes just showing vegetation or sometimes showing say just the elevation or the railway map and now these days like there is there's some instagram handle which i forgot but just like where all i have been in the world you right. can just pin them on the maps or Correct. best best surfing beaches of the map so yeah if you if is there any definition or anybody can make a map or like yeah we can start there that what are different types of maps and then how does one explore it yeah so i would say there are broadly eight categories of maps oh. that exist in the world today there would be political maps that's the easiest to understand yeah. and uh, yeah and political maps are maps by which humans are willing to shed blood over you just look at russia and ukraine i mean these are the most contested maps and people are willing to die over those boundaries okay so political maps is everyone understands what a political map is but there are also other categories there are physical maps there are topographical maps climate maps road and navigational maps would be one category then economic and economic maps thematic maps and cadastral maps so each of them are like separate categories but one could also use them in various permutations and combinations you know you could have a road map which is also a navigational map but it could also be tied into say like the topographic map of the region so you know like how much fuel you're going to expend and that would make it a thematic map because you know you're navigating with the map but you're also knowing how much fuel you're burning by the elevation you're moving through like you're going from say goa to nepal uh versus say going from new york to california uh, you know you are navigating various uh, physical perimeters but you are quantifying data while you are while you're making these maps sure sure got it so um yeah then maybe we can double click on the political one like why do we need maps <laughs> yeah so fundamentally we need as human beings as i said we're here for a finite amount of time and we're born and 
have to make sense of this very complex uh, world we live in. So maps have become the default uh, tools by which we then begin unpacking the world around us. Okay, so these are very uh, these are very political tools, and the way we understand the world is also has a long history to it. So every generation of human beings adds a layer of mapping that helps the next generation to navigate this complex world around us. So let's start with the earliest map makers. The world's first map maker, they say, existed existed in Greece. Uh, though I mean, was Anaximander. And as uh, Anaximander created uh, a world map for him, the world was round with Europe on top. And uh, Europe was the place where uh, human beings uh, existed because that's the way he saw the world. But he was immediately challenged by his student and his students, Anaximenes, said, no, no way. The world is not round. The world is flat. It's rectangular. And uh, so the world's first maker was immediately challenged by his own student. So maps are highly contested. It is because what we're doing is we're taking very complex data and we're using human bias in order to filter through that data. So map making is highly contested hmm. and uh, there's no uh, right and wrong. It's just perspective that we bring to the data that makes this terrain so complex. And it is also something we are willing to shed blood over. Okay, mm-hmm. so the way we draw boundaries don't like political boundaries don't exist on the terrain. These are some things that exist in maps. But if someone crosses a political boundary, you're asking for trouble. Mm. And uh, this is I'm not talking about national boundaries also. I'm just uh, talking about all manner of social constructs. I'm talking about caste, religion, and you're seeing this happening in India at the moment. But you're seeing very, very deeply held uh, beliefs of where boundaries exist and what can be transgressed, being enforced on the ground. So as a democratic society, map making has become ever more important. And uh, it is very important for civil society and for the government to, in a democratic society or in a society that aims to be democratic, is to make data available to the citizens. And by which then certain uh, social conditions can be fought over and can be contested in a fair democratic manner. Okay, there are all manner of boundaries, caste boundaries, gender boundaries, language boundaries that exist in the urban sphere around us. Okay, but uh, we have to bring this out. And this is one of the reasons why we founded the Goa Collective is because this data is not available to us. And... uh, We have to go searching for it, and it's quite difficult to find this data. So Mm. we're making baby steps. Which sort of data is this uh, for Goa Collective? As in, is it just the physical and the topological sort of boundaries or much more than that? Yeah. Okay. So we're a bunch of architects and design studios who've gotten together, and uh, we want to bring in our skills as architects, urban designers, industrial designers to the medium, uh, to a democratic space by which uh, society then can visualize the societies they live in. Because if you don't have maps to reveal the patterns that influence our lives, we just think like, you know, we are operating with pure logic and we don't question the structures around us. So this is one of the reasons map making then becomes such an important tool for us. 
and uh, the most basic data is topographical data, physical data. So that's where we began, because that's also an area we understand quite well, uh, is mm. mapping of cities and mapping of urban environments. Uh, but to get a hold of this data is not that easy. So there are a lot of uh, government agencies that have this data, but they will not share it with you. They will also not share it with each other. Okay, because under the guise of national security, whatever. Oh, okay. There's always this fear that, you know, giving too much data to the population makes them restless and makes them demanding of the government. So best use national security to not share any sort of physical data. But this has become more and more redundant because I don't know if you've ever noticed certain signs on dams, for instance, no photography allowed. This era of satellite photography is just completely redundant. But uh, these are the kind of uh, impediments that exist in society. And in a democratic society, civil society should push back against this. And uh, this is one thing I realized uh, living in two very different societies, America and Singapore. So in America, for all its faults, there's one thing one can look up to that society is the amount of data they make available to the ordinary citizen. So you want to know how African-Americans are marginalized in New York City, there will be a data set by which you can get that data and refer to it and make a map from it. Now, that, uh, you know, when you visualize data like that and you bring it out in the public, there's an immediate demand for social justice then, right? Mm. So I was amazed and I was like a foreigner studying there. And uh, I mean, I was a student in the university, but I used the university to get all manner of information, which I thought would never be made available to me. And I constantly thought, like, what would Goa look like if I had all this data available to me? So when I, okay, so then I lived in Singapore and I also tried getting this data. And it was not available to you at all. The data you were fed was what the government gave you, okay? And generally, when the government gives you data, it's all very rosy. Mm-hmm. It's not going to challenge the status quo. So when I began teaching at the Goa College of Architecture, I also began looking at, uh, I began looking at some of the work students had conducted. And uh, I began looking at Goa, and it was disturbingly like America, because America is very divided on racial lines. And I thought Goa was a very harmonious society, which it is. It is. It is. All like I can say, it's a really nice place to live in. It has its, it has its problems, but uh, like whatever, living here, it's a pleasant place to live in. And when some of the students went and started mapping this data, how do the different religions live in Goa? You think they'd all be mixed and, you know, having peaceful coexistence? And it was quite shocking. It was actually very, very divided for religious lines, and including like building blocks, almost exclusively like of one religion or the other. And uh, like, but when I saw that data, I was like, oh my God, this is very close to the data like I saw in America. It's like the way New York is, it's like highly multicultural, but it's highly segregated also. So yeah, so uh, it's good to get that data out in a democratic society. And this is what we're aiming to do. It's just like make people a bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's challenge, uh, challenge the notions of what we think uh, you know, like Goan society is. And so we started with the simplest. We don't want to jump directly into this. 
kind of religious sphere and like you know it gets highly contested so we just started with this very simple topic which uh, would startle everybody it's like the river systems of goa and how they are dying because like no matter what your social class or religion or social standing is you are going to be concerned <laughs> looking at the way mining has ruined goa's landscape and uh, you are also seeing a startling rise in cancer related deaths in goa i don't know if you can put two and two together but one of the discussions we had at the goa collective is is it is this cancer rising because it's being detected early hmm. or is it some sort of environmental you know some environmental impact that is happening that is causing all this cancer and we don't know we don't have the answers for that but what we are trying to look at is see why is it spreading across goa is it a lifestyle thing are goans doing something that is causing all this cancer so we started looking at water because water is what all of us like common sort yeah, of it's yeah. a common it's something we all use and it's something provided by the government right and uh, what we noticed is a lot of the mining pits are being used to supply water like drinking water from mining pits and old mines are very close to rivers and there's all these problems of heavy metal leaching into the water so this was one of the first things we wanted to study is the effect of the physical landscape like on goa society so this is something we're exploring right now is just that the river systems the water what are we consuming where is this water coming from and the government is quite open about it like in may they just begin pumping all this water out from mining pits but treating it and putting it in our taps now yeah okay so <laughs> where do we go from here can we make a map we, uh, do we have the data of cancer cases in goa we'll put it down give us the data tell us which taluka has a spike in cancer numbers and tell us where the water is coming from if there isn't a correlation then fine i mean hmm. let's uh, discover what is causing all this is it a lifestyle change are we more sedentary is this are we eating wrongly i mean all this can be mapped right so hmm. we got to get to the bottom of this at some yeah. point yeah i'm sort of getting but i'm not able to visualize exactly how this gets placed or how this gets tagged and then what it goes into but yeah i think that will maybe if you can touch upon in the end but uh, because the way i am sort of visualizing it's it's like you walking with the gps and just plotting something or is it like you taking some satellite photos and then like imposing or superimposing certain sort of um, diagrams over the geography i think we'll we'll come to that yeah. uh, in a bit but sure. uh, keeping the philosophical aspect like do you think maps sort of like what comes first like the maps or the boundaries because when you were saying about karnataka and goa typically again what i can visualize is that welcome to karnataka welcome to belgaum that sort of a board yeah. and then there is some outline uh, there is a typically a toll uh, when you cross states so so yeah are these plotted first or how do these get sort of plotted also are they organically growing or someone is deciding and then like yeah if you can give some insights there yeah okay so one of the most fascinating talks i've attended was one in mumbai when i was an architecture student uh, when i was a young architect working one of my first jobs i was uh, uh, like i was called for this uh, 
this small conference in which Professor Dilip Dakuna from the University of Pennsylvania was giving a talk on water. Mm. And he said, uh, this division of land and water seems very natural to human beings. Like, you know, we know what is land, we know what is water. But Mm -hmm. uh, he said, uh, it has a very, if you look at it in a very scientific way, this division is not very, is not as clear as we make it out to be. Okay, because the the world exists in a state of wetness where land, no matter how dry it is, has an element of water in it. There is vapor, etc. There's groundwater anyways. Yeah, there's groundwater. There's all manner of water that exists on land. But if you look at a map, you know where, whatever, the boundary of Goa starts and the Arabian Sea, like where the boundary of Goa ends and the Arabian Sea starts. That line is very sharp on the map. Okay, but uh, we also are a state that gets three meters of rainfall. Okay, so in the monsoons in like two months. So now it's like very dry. We're in April and there's very little water on the land. But come June, there's water everywhere. So when you make a map, how do you draw these boundaries? Like how do you take a pen and say this is land and this is water? And till today, with all the technology we have, there is no like scientific way of of depicting that boundary okay so there is uh, always this element of human bias that exists on how one draws a boundary okay and uh, we are constantly like being fooled that uh, you know technology just the all we require is an advance of technology and that map making in the future will be totally objective and this element of human bias will disappear at some point and it will never. This is you what mean, you're saying. We are fooled. We are fooled by saying this. Yeah, we are fooled. We are fooled. And uh, the way we draw boundaries, the way we draw boundaries on maps, is determined by our human bias. Okay. So when you say which came first, the boundary or the map, I would say is human bias came first. It's like human bias came first, and then we draw a boundary where we think, be it a political boundary or a physical boundary, the separation of land and water. And it's then uh, like, okay, yeah, so then you draw a map, you separate land and water. The next person who comes looks at the map says, yeah, this is where land and water are separated and will build a band in that area and literally separate land and water based on the map. Mm. So these are very, uh, these are very powerful tools, let's put it that way. Because, and it influences a lot of human behavior and how we navigate the world. Right? Mm. Very fascinating. Let's take a short break here. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to the show. I interviewed Ganesh Devi, the linguist, and I had asked him a similar question that like what's a standard language? Is there something called a standard language? And he gave almost a similar answer. I mean, like the parallels are similar where there is nothing called a standard. It's just that it's a political concept. And uh, in fact, like what we call is like one of the other podcasts, which I had heard, he's sort of the guest on that podcast, put it very beautifully that a standard language is a language with a gun in a hand. So it's it's just like power play of sort of human beings uh, over the other. Yeah, so like... Could I add something to that? Yeah, please, please. Yeah, so uh, it's the 
the same with map making. It's exactly the same with map making. Map making is a very powerful tool. It is because whenever we map something, it implies we have the data. We have the measurements of that data set in order to make a map, right? So when we are mapping something like a minoritized group or, or wildlife under threat, it is assumed that the map maker has the data of the subject. But frequently, when it comes to mapping other social conditions, it's only one group that has that data that is able to map other groups. So frequently, if you see maps of, say, tribes of India, there's the government that's making these maps or this, or these advantaged uh, dominant groups, social groups are making these maps. And the tribes of India are, not just, are like uh, many of them are in social condition by which they cannot respond with maps of their own. So there is this huge like political you know, difference of power that prevents certain groups from responding with maps because you know, then you can have like a proper contestation of ideas. Mm-hmm. But when one person is making the maps, has the data to make maps, it also speaks of that, mm-hmm. of the difference in power that these groups hold. But can there be, I don't know, Marlab, uh, it's a tough one because Wikipedia also to a certain extent gets like fudged, right? But still, yeah. it's it's sort of the closest democratic sort of setup where we are trusting. So is there something that can be done in the map world also by plotting certain things and then validating with other groups and keeping it completely democratic as opposed to we drawing a line of POK or whatever, LOC and yeah. yeah. Is there right. something like that? Yes. Uh, and this is where professionals, you know, any professional within the design space has a huge uh, role to play because many of us come from groups that have a lot of like social advantage over other groups. Okay. And we are the ones who can make maps, but we can also offer skills to these groups in order to map uh, data that is valid to them. For instance, there are many villages in Goa who are opposed to very powerful multinational groups. Okay. And these villages, tend to be very kind of socially disadvantaged. But say they want to protect their water resources, etc. If uh, this can be mapped, you know, a professional can go and help them make a map. It becomes a very powerful tool by which they can then go and speak to the government and speak back to power, mobilize themselves. So uh, design professionals and the design world has a huge role to play in which we can make very basic maps specifically of uh, groups, uh, no matter which environment we exist, even in Mumbai, just go outside your house, there will be a squatter settlement that would be deemed illegal. Mm. Okay, So human, uh, the urban condition should not make any human being, you know, the settlement, the housing of any human being in a city illegal. So you have to go, you have to uh, make a map, help these neighborhoods mobilize by whatever mapping all the data that they want put out there. And it's very simple data. How many households have water? Can we get a sewerage line mm-hmm. to every house? And, and where do you get this, this is... from? Like from the local municipality? Or you're actually talking to people and, and going around in that area? You can do both. Because, uh, you know, uh, for all the bad things we hear about our government in which we are always grumbling about how badly the government works, there are officers with a good heart, let's put it simply, who will give you this data. 
and if they see that you are going towards a goal that is like socially responsible many of them go out of their way to because they also want to leave a legacy behind so it's good to speak to people it's good to speak to people they are the ones who have the knowledge of the local terrain but the government has the overall data mm. and uh, of you know utilities social structure it's all that it's just that you need to go and fish it yeah. the reason why i sort of spoke about the wikipedia thing is because i was uh, just reading through uh, mahatma gandhi's sort of description and i don't know what's the current status but it is said that he is popularly known as father of the nation while in school it was said he is known as father of the nation so the mm-hmm. narratives are changing subtly without even people noticing and so what is happening here like do you think like when humans are creating these sort of power structures or or sort of demarcations are they creating sort of exclusivity that this is say goa and this is maharashtra and these are goans and these are maharashtrians and so yeah I, i mean i wanted to ask like do they create exclusivity or like what are the dangers of map making also yeah so that's precisely so in a democratic space all ideas should be contested like in the grand scheme of things so exclusivity is one is one of the ways in which political power exerts itself in the social sphere okay so it has to be challenged also so the best way of challenging social hierarchies is to make a map from the other side is to have two maps speak to each other in the oldest greek tradition the first map that was made by anaximander was challenged by his students so yeah so whenever you feel that mm. certain boundaries are being drawn too harshly they also have to be challenged and map making is the best way of challenging them of socially mobilizing and politically mobilizing people mm-hmm. but even in the greek traditions and whatever little bit i know there were certain formats there was certain logic there were certain ethics and there was certain grammar in which these arguments are were also contested or these these conversations is there any pattern here where or it's just sharing raw data and your representation because when a human is drawing it it's there is a bias right so then how do you contest objectively so as i've said maps are, have an inherent bias map making has an inherent bias to it there can never be a map that is completely objective that can never be challenged that map doesn't exist it is because you are taking very complex data sets you're simplifying them and you are using your intuition and your personal biases and or group biases for that matter in order to simplify this data right so data and contestation go hand in hand it is because we are looking at the world with two different lenses or many different lenses but there would so, be an exception in terms of the geographical the physical location because i mean like panjim yeah. is right at a particular lat long right so that cannot right. be challenged so apart from that everything can be challenged or there are other certain maps which may not be challenged because of like hard okay. evidences so so when we say panjimin is in a certain place in new york is somewhere else we are following a certain set of conventions and those conventions are can be challenged okay because uh, you know as society moves on the different ways of viewing this data and different conventions arise so yes the way we see the world today has been built upon by ptolemy's maps and mercator and uh, alberuni 
We are all building up on that data, but we are also changing conventions, etc. So this idea that a map is unchanging or Panjim is in Panjim and in a certain location and will always be here, I would say the convention probably 200 years from now would be something completely different wow. because technology changes, measurements change. You know, the way we see data is constantly evolving. So yeah, so there's lots of space of contestation. Wow. So I don't know, for like just to be adventurous, I'm going very abstract. So if all yeah. people from Panjim move to say Delhi physically, yeah. will like Panjim be called Panjim or will Delhi be called Panjim? I mean, finally, it's a group of people and their living style, what cultural values they carry. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether it's making sense, but I'm... No, no, it makes complete yeah. sense. I'll just give you a very interesting reading that I was doing. That said, uh, you know, in America, being the country of immigrants, everybody is curious to know where they came from. And uh, the colonial administration in Goa kept very, very accurate records of who you were. Okay, so if I want to trace myself uh, in Goa, I can do a pretty accurate job till the records were kept. But now there is this interesting tool of DNA analysis. Okay, so you can go, I mean, anybody in the world can go and do a DNA test. And the results are totally fascinating because, you know, we always feel, yeah, I am from here, you are from there. But you do a DNA test and uh, it'll show that you've moved all around the world, basically. That uh, we started in Africa, one branch moved here, one branch moved there. And uh, in America, that's a very big thing because a lot of African-Americans do not have this data. Where in Africa did they come from? So they do this test and uh, it throws up sometimes results that do not always match with their known family histories. Okay, so sometimes uh, say someone is seen to be from Ghana from DNA tests. Can you be 100% sure that that person came from Ghana? And scientists are saying increasingly no, uh, you can't be so sure because uh, groups of human beings are constantly shifting locations because we are mobilized politically. And many times we are displaced politically also. Hmm. So we might, I might live in Goa, but tomorrow, like whatever, my group of uh, people could be displaced to Delhi. Okay. But thousand years from now, someone does a DNA test and it shows that I lived in Delhi. You know, the shift might not be represented. So hmm. there's this whole fascinating, uh, like, you know, map making that's going on of human migrations between where do you think you've come from and where does scientific data validate that claim? Okay. So as I said, there's measurement and then there's representation. So politically, you could say I came from here, but scientifically, the measurement data might not totally match mm. up. Wow. I can see like a connect again with the Ganesh Devi's talk because even he mentioned yeah. about languages because we are personified as a mother sort of language, yeah. we yeah. think that it dies because it's personified. But it right. technically, it doesn't die. It's killed. It's systematically killed by certain political right. sort of uh, motives and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's very fascinating to draw parallels of what I'm hearing from you. So how frequently right. are these drawn or redrawn or like, yeah, I mean... I would say, when, what when, is the when is the right time to redraw? <laughs> say post-independence yeah, I, I, or every day? <laughs> right. So I would just say it really depends on the motivations for 
redrawing maps because there is a certain motivation when one draws a map or redraws a map for that matter. Why are you doing it? That's the question I would ask is like, how often it's done, the more contested the terrain is, the more like the boundary is going to be challenged, right? Because uh, you also see, I mean, you see this in everyday life, encroachment. Like what is encroachment? It's like you mark your piece of land. Someone says, no, I don't believe that piece of paper. This is where I think my rights lay. It's on your land. So it really depends on the contestation, depends on the motivation, depends on the political climate. Like, uh, Plus, you know, this, this three quarter trust. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So also map making, some of the most, uh, the greatest uh, advances in map making have come from the military. And the military uh, industrial complex uh, of today has given us whatever GPS, you know, GIS, everything has come from the military industrial complex. It is because the political boundaries are so contested and we've developed this whole industry around it to, you know, map the earth to the last millimeter in order to, and that's why technology, that's why so much investment goes into map making and militaries. You see, you know, armies today navigate by satellites, which have measured the earth through triangulation in pretty accurate ways. And this is, uh, you know, is, has frequently happened in human history, is as we expand, as we discover the globe, as we push other people away from terrain, you know, we put in more investments into map making. With today's sort of data-driven world, like how yeah. can we sort of vouch the accuracy of a map now again i know because of hearing that there are so many types of maps you can pick yeah. one which has been sort of yeah political is the most contested but yeah like just to make it relatable also if we can sort yeah. of look at a particular type of map and then how do we sort of guarantee the accuracy of it right okay so we have to also know what we are challenging are we challenging broader conventions as in like are we challenging the way we that these conventions look at the world? Or are we challenging measurement data? Because there might be that data available, but the way it is being represented could be questioned. Okay, so the same person could look at the same data and represent it very differently. Like, I'll give you a very simple example. If you use a dot to represent the population of Bombay versus that of Goa, how big that dot would be in relation to a certain area of Bombay. So Bombay, I think it's about 20 million people. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 20 yeah, million people. Go, but like, Goa would, I have no idea. Similar? 1.5 million. 1.5 million. But there are parts of Goa, like the urban centers, that are quite uh, dense, hmm. right? But if we just uh, use one dot to represent Goa and one dot to represent Bombay, it doesn't give you the full picture. Okay. But so, in, in different sizes, no? But in difference? In different sizes. But a person coming to live in Goa, if he came to live in a dense part of, say, Panjim City, it's not as like open as you'd imagine it to be, right? But there could be some parts of, say, Alibag or Greater Bombay, which would be green, mm. right? So the way the same data is represented can be challenged. The way the, that measurement data is visualized because again, it comes with a certain bias that one brings to the table. But then there are broader conventions that 
as you said, like, okay, like the coordinates of Panjim are always going to be a certain way of representation that would seem unchanging, mm. right? So if you want to like challenge that, you are challenging a convention that has been in the works for like 2000 years. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in right. fact, now that I said in thousand years, maybe that lat long is also not accurate because we are shifting, we are expanding as yeah. there's water levels rising. So yeah, even that is, that is changing. Yeah, get it, get it. Right. Or it would have evolved in such a manner, say thousand years from now, technology would have evolved in such a manner that if you looked at the map thousand years from now of Panjim and the same map that is produced today, they might look like two different maps altogether. It is because we are evolving all the time. It also requires a certain element of visual literacy. We read maps because, uh, you know, there's an element of uh, conditioning that allows us to read maps in a certain way. But like thousand years into the future, we might not be able to even read those maps. It might be so complex. Mm, very fascinating. Very. <laughs> I just like, I'm losing chain of thought, but uh, like, how are these designed? Like any, if I want, like the earlier question, which I mentioned about like a bit technical yeah. key, who's a cartographer or if I know you're not like, but if you can just give some, because you are a designer can sort of yeah. like, how are these designed? Like, are you placing something? Are you putting it out as print work? Are you sort of putting it in the cloud? Is it just like put up on, on like right. a Goa museum? Like, how are you sort of, because you're creating and then how are you? So actually that is a question we grappled with is like, we said, okay, we want to make maps. Then we said, we are architects and industrial designers. How do we get to make maps? It's not so easy for someone to just go and start drawing maps. Like, because there's so much of work that's already been done. Where do you begin? So what we began doing and what I began doing specifically was collaborating with other map makers that exist across the country. And they're very specialized map makers, people who concentrate specifically on topography, on um, urban mapping, etc. So what we did was I got together a group of architects and we began talking to all these people across the country, exchanging data and then overlaying these uh, data sets and trying to reach a certain consensus of what is the story we're trying to get at? And uh, so we reached out to this topographer who makes these very detailed topographic maps of the country. And then we asked him, okay, you zoom into this area. Then we looked into military maps. Okay. And military maps uh, frequently look at data sets that impede the military. So like rivers that need to be crossed, etc., are depicted pretty accurately in military maps. So we took that topographical data, we overlaid it with this military uh, data. And then what we started getting is the terrain of Goa looking very different from what the government data kind of wants you to look at the terrain. We started seeing like the mining industry having a devastating impact on Goa's uh, physical landscape because much like the Konkan coast, there is not very large elevations in the terrain. So whenever you have like mining in Goa, basically start flattening out hills. When you start flattening out hills, it's the watershed that leads into the rivers that also get flattened out. So the health of the rivers also deteriorate. But that 
starts revealing itself when you talk to various map makers and then bring all their data sets together. You know, a story, a pattern starts revealing itself. So, yeah, so there is this angle, this political angle that we try to get at. But there's also these data sets we play with. Mm. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you, but you 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 said it aloud, is that if you're like a documentary filmmaker or a journalist, typically you don't start mm-hmm. with an agenda. You just like purely document for the document's yeah. sake and then sort of have an opinion or infer something from it, yeah. but not really start by challenging something. Uh, I mean, that, that will like really spoil the whole design of it. And then, yeah, how do you sort of, put this out for consumption? Like, is it just on sort of the digital medium that we are in? Or is it also helping certain other bodies to take certain calls? Like, I, I know for the postal road, Ayaz and uh, Sameep have been sort of like yeah. working towards it and then working with the local bodies to to sort of the influence or at least educate, right? So, so yeah. like, if you can just give like a bit of Goa Collective, how is it helping other sort of people in the yeah. system so uh, one of my personal projects is working with this village of chimbal yeah. and uh, what i've done is uh, i wanted to also demonstrate the power of maps and uh, so i was documenting an archaeological site and uh, you know goa has so many archaeological sites but many times they're not acknowledged by the government because why add another archaeological site when you do not have the money to maintain the ones already protected so just ignore it right in fact yeah i would say uh, there is money it's just that why to spend there it's it's sort of (laughs) so i would say one of uh, the tricks i employed knowing the power of google maps was i told 50 of my friends like over a period of six months this archaeological site exists and i sent them a photo on whatsapp with the location pin kindly visit it visit that site and I have uploaded the photo of that site and dropped a pin in Google Earth and I put a small description and I said just go to the site let Google Maps record that you've been to the site and leave a review of the site that's it okay the government doesn't want to acknowledge this site you go and acknowledge Mm -hmm. it so like say 50 of my friends went over six months and uh, started posting photos on Google Maps, etc. And that whole thing went viral. Like people in the village didn't know it existed. And then they got to know like tourists, like foreign tourists, etc. Started like coming to that site in the middle of Chimbal village, which is in the middle of like nowhere. And visiting the site and totally impressed. And then the whole like village got together and started putting a lot of pressure on the government. And they finally declared it a protected site, you know. So that's the power of uh, Google Maps. Yeah. So there's a lot of work that can be done, specifically with people with a graphic design background or architectural background. These are the tools of future, you know, map making. And we're quite, uh, like, if we want to be, like, socially engaged, it's a wonderful way of, like, engaging with society. Amazing, amazing. Any other site that or any other work that you would like to share, which has uh, sort of impacted or brought attention to the government or any of that matter, like any NGO got noticed and Yeah. So what I'm working on now is actually is mapping an informal settlement, which is 
like I don't like to use the word slum, but in a squatter settlement in the village of Shimbel, which has been ignored for a very long time. You know. And Goan society has this problem that uh, we do not, uh, we just like to ignore uh, urban growth and then push people to specifically from disadvantaged backgrounds to the boundary. And then you've seen like this huge growth of these informal settlements on the boundaries of our cities. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's leading to the deterioration of the cities because you can't have a good part of a city and a bad part of a city. And it's, we are all part of one urban landscape in Panjim. So one of the things I am doing with my students at the Goa College of Architecture is sending them there. Is first acknowledge that that place exists. Let's put it on a map. Let's map these houses. Let's show that human beings live in slums. Let's show that they are also politically marginalized and the densities they live in, inhuman. Okay, And the same densities that exist in your neighborhoods with, uh, you know, gated complexes and trees, etc. That kind of density should be made available to all citizens of Belgium. So what we're trying to do is uh, get into these neighborhoods, gain the trust of the neighborhood, and then bring forward uh, problems of urban congestion, you know, the lack of a sewerage system, too many human beings living too close to each other, which leads to all sorts of epidemics and disease outbreaks because you're packing so many people so close together. Mm. Where is all that sewage going? Is it causing skin problems? Is it causing waterborne diseases? If it causes waterborne diseases, can you live in Panjim and say that I am completely immune to what's happening in Chimbel? You can't. So we are working on this project and I frequently like uh, encourage my students to go there and then build up upon the data that previous students have built. And uh, people are very thankful yeah, because then they can take that and ask the government, okay, provide us a sewerage line, etc. So, yeah. Mm. A common friend whom I've also interviewed, Ayaz Basrai, I think he yeah. put it nicely uh, that these conversations are just expanding my mind. Like it's, it's like design is, is a different meaning altogether in this context. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, this is, uh, you know, and ever since I've gotten to this uh, field of map making, uh, it just expands your social boundaries because architects talk to architects and uh, interior designers talk to interior designers. Once you start engaging with social groups and civil society, you realize how diverse society is and that your friends groups, then your social circle also improves, <laughs> it expands. You have so many more conversations to make. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I think uh, I'm sort of, I would like to meet you in person definitely and, and have longer conversation. But just to conclude this episode, obviously, in the given sort of time we have, we are talking about like you you slightly moved the needle with Google Maps, uh, which is a step towards yes. the future and technology. So have you given some thought about what's the future of maps in especially in the metaverse and in the digital world that we are entering? I've heard some I can call horror stories that people are just sitting in like with their Oculus sets and living the world almost in like the digital, in the metaverse and don't know what's happening around. So yeah, it's tough, but have you given some thought about it? 100 years out, 50 years out? 
yeah the way technology is expanding yeah, what's, what's going to happen to maps? <laughs> yeah what's going to happen to maps the way the world is going to be simplified for you is also quite dangerous because you know we are leading we are going down this path of like having all this data available but it's being simplified to an extent that it's becoming it's becoming too easy to digest at times so we'll we're living in this kind of post truth world where yeah data exists but it's simplified and dumbed down so much that people can be misled right you've seen that in america you've seen that in other democratic countries it's like we've had a very strong democratic tradition but you're constantly being fed with this data and visuals and graphs and the scaremongering so there's always a is a positive side of technology that measurements are increasing data analysis that's all being like that's really advancing but you're also having this negative side that it's being weaponized so yeah it's challenging time to be in and uh, yeah it requires a lot of more a lot more engagement with the subject i would feel in conversations like this speaking about map making etc also it needs a lot of purification because i was listening to another sort of spiritual podcast where he said like with yeah i mean it's a cliche line with great power comes great responsibility but uh, yeah, but it, it's sort of very important to utilize the power in the right direction and unless you're not inherently pure it's going to be catastrophic because it's because it's very very powerful absolutely yeah, yeah. and it can be weaponized also yeah and now it's giving the individual the ability to weaponize all this data yeah, yeah. like you have all this data that's going to be available to you how do you use it responsibly mm-hmm. right you can also like go down like a very catastrophic path yeah. i've been poking around like the metaverse and there are these decentral land and like whatever the metaverse may they have created maps and people are blocking lands and stuff and it's yeah. truly a democratic setup but then there are no boundaries so they're creating artificial boundaries so that there is some demand supply kind of a uh, yeah. dynamic otherwise it's just like endless it's it's an infinite world that has been created in the metaverse also so yeah i mean that yeah. would be very interesting to explore as well in the map setup itself <laughs> right 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 yeah. cool uh, i think this was wonderful thanks a lot for giving your time uh, anything which i have missed uh, which you would like to share about map in general i would actually just like to make an appeal actually more than anything sure, else sure, is uh, uh, is to people who follow the goa collective and if you ever want to collaborate or ask us for any data or discuss any ideas please feel free to reach out and we are like totally open source and we'll tell you how we make like make maps what are the biases we bring to the table and we can have a free flowing discussion we've reached out already to a small group of map makers across the country and it's an absolutely wonderful conversation we're having and we'd like more people to jump into this bandwagon and you know make more interesting maps because in a democratic society we require this we require more maps coming out more terrain being contested correct yeah and, and i'll add show notes i link all the show notes and uh, for that you can visit audiogan.com also i hardly make a plug but okay uh, thanks a lot uh, uh, fernando for this uh, it was really wonderful talking to you and all the best and hopefully we catch up in person soon 
and yes, yes, then yes. sort of teach me some tidbits of like map making also. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on your talk. I really enjoyed this. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. And that's it from today's Gan session. For show notes and more Gan, visit audiogan.com. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to check our other interesting podcast on IVM Network. You can listen to us on IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or any of your favorite podcasting apps. To stay tuned, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at IVM Podcast. And if you wish to connect with me, I am at Audiogan Moments on Instagram. Until then, take care. It's been a great week on the IVM Podcast Network. On this round is on me. Gauri is joined by Shweta Nanda. They talk about the financial independence and how it is to be a woman entrepreneur. On Anish Thing, Anish welcomes ultra marathon runner Shivani Gharat. Shivani shares her journey of how she ran her first marathon, the mindset of a runner, and what it actually takes to run a full marathon. On Cock and Bull, Cyrus, Naveen, Akash, and Shreyas talk about the Korean band BTS serving in the military and its repercussions. On Think Fast, Varun and Suchita discuss Wing Greens and their latest acquisitions and about the Indian sexual wellness market. And on Shuni One, Sheila Dathya is joined by Dinika Bhatia, CEO and founder of Nati Gritties. They talk about coming from a business family and Dinika's journey in creating healthy and guilt-free snacking. Once again, don't forget to visit our merch store on ivmpodcast.com. We have some exciting new merch out there for you. Also, do follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. And do remember to spread the word about these shows and any other shows you might be listening to. Appreciate them, rate them and review them wherever you are listening to them. You can also check out all our other shows on youtube.com slash IBM podcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week. Volvo XC40 Recharge, Bumble, Heads Up for Tales, Kotak Privy League Program and HDFC Mutual Fund. Thanks guys, without you this would not be possible. Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about Web3, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms and how do they affect our future on the internet? So many questions, but don't worry, we've got answers to all your questions. Hi, I'm Eklavya Bhattacharya and on our show Future Proofing, we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts. Tune into new episodes coming out every Thursday on the IBM Podcast app and the website or wherever you get your podcasts from.